analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Uh, exciting program lined up for you. We're going to talk about a lot of things, including that uh, rail disaster near field, tragically claiming three lives, so rail safety is coming up in a little bit. We're going to talk about renewal in the B.C. Liberal Party with Liberal MLA Mike Bernier. That will finish off the show. Uh, we'll also have another Liberal MLA on, Todd Stone. A little bit of a fallout from the BCLC downtown Kamloops headquarters building uh, situation, so we'll hear from Mr. Stone in a bit. But first, we're going to talk about wildfire smoke. Uh, interesting uh, conference. And down in Vancouver yesterday, revealing the chemical soup that's in wildfire smoke. Joining me to talk about that is TRU's Dr. Michael Meta. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm well, Shane. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, so, listen, um, this is an issue you're you're not unfamiliar with, but uh, I was caught first of all by a report, I believe, out of University down in the states about the dangerous impacts of wildfire smoke as far as breathing it in, uh, impacts to health, even causing some death in cases. Uh, and then uh, just yesterday here in BC, there. There's been a convention down in Vancouver uh, where they basically refer to wildfire smoke as a chemical soup that can get trapped in the lungs and cause any number of health problems. Matter of fact, so much so we don't understand the long-term impacts. Uh, does any of this come as a surprise to you or no? No, not at all. I mean, for the last two years, people in the region have been exposed to significant amounts of smoke from forest fires. And we've known for an awful long time that the chemical composition of smoke is very similar to tobacco smoke, um, but unfortunately at least 12 times more toxic. So this, this is not surprising. So here's a big question then. If, if it is so damaging to our health, and, and, and you know, especially here in Kamloops where we've had two consecutive summers of basically sitting in the smoke and breathing it in and stuff, um, do we need to get our heads wrapped around the exact health impacts so we can figure out what to do? Because it seems to me there's a shocking sort of unawareness, uh, even at the senior levels of government, to you know, the health impacts in this and any kind of mitigation efforts. There seems to be a collective blindness when it comes to uh, air pollution generally. And it's not unique to Kamloops. Lots of communities are also sort of in that same situation where, um, you know, there's a lack of understanding or a lack of will to understand this. And I think part of it in the case of wildfires is that uh, a lot of people just assume that there's nothing they can do. And that's uh, the farthest thing from the truth. So what should we do then? When we look at wildfire smoke, what we're looking at usually are short transient periods of high levels of exposure. And uh, we have a, a network of air quality sensors, the Purple Air Sensor Network, as well as other networks that the province has set up, which can give us a really good early detection to let us know that these are on their way. I think once we know that a, a wildfire event is happening and the smoke is hitting a region, uh, people can be a lot more proactive. They can certainly reduce their outdoor activity. They should probably buy in advance if they can afford it, HEPA air filtration systems so that they can run them right away. And of course, they have to minimize their outdoor exposure. So there are lots of things we can do, uh, including being very vigilant around our children to make sure that their exposures are minimized. In your mind, should uh, should even, I mean, never mind the province and sort of health authorities provincially and federally, but at a municipal level, should there be a, some kind of a system where, okay, we have a certain amount of particulate matter in the air, a certain amount of smoke in the air, uh, okay, that's it. We we simply don't do outdoor activities. If we got the soccer tournament planned, we don't do that. We've got the high school thing outdoors, we don't do that. Um, because to some extent that happens, but there doesn't seem to be a definitive scale of, of awareness uh, as far as outdoor activities here. 
Well, there's a lot of uh, buck passing that happens when it comes to things like air pollution, where a municipality might say that it's not their responsibility, that it's the uh, provincial. The provincial might say it's not their responsibility, it's the federal. But a lot of uh, communities are actually doing exactly what you suggest. And even at the level of schools where they have scales, for example, based on you know something like the Air Quality Health Index or some other index, where they suggest that when a certain threshold is surpassed, the children don't play outside during recess. So, yes, I think it's certainly uh, something we can do. We should we should strive for, but I'm not sure the political will is there. As far as uh, dealing with it, I mean, heaven forbid we have another summer where we spend a week, two, a month, whatever, in this in the pea soup wildfire smoke, which isn't pleasant. Not my my favorite thing to do. Um, should we establish what clean air centers? Uh, how do we deal with it when it's in our face? If it is indeed uh, so 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 terrible for our health. Well, we need, to, I think, a, a very proactive approach. Clean air centers are an excellent idea, especially for people that can't avoid it, and the homeless, for example. And certainly we need to have uh, mechanisms in place where our employers are a lot more open to the fact that their employees are exposed and to, you know, create alternative work for them that minimizes their, their risk. I've talked to a lot of people over the last two summers who were... Uh, felt that they had no choice but to continue working outside uh, their full shifts during the worst of the forest fire events. And and really, that's something that uh, is avoidable and something we should fix. Do we need to better understand the health impacts? Because one of the things that caught my eye in in, uh, some of the experts talking yesterday was, okay, we've raised some awareness. We know this is damaging to some extent. However, when it comes to long-term impacts, when it's summer in, summer out, year after year, we don't really know what that means. We assume it's bad. We don't know to what extent. How important is it to really definitively bear down on this thing and say, okay, um, this is what it does over a month. This is what it does for summers on end so that we can begin to understand the impacts, raise awareness, deal with it we do understand the impacts that's uh, again what's happening with that kind of conclusion that, that we still need more information is that uh, people are in denial there have been literally hundreds if not thousands of studies around the world on short-term acute exposures to air pollution which uh, are very telling and they suggest that uh, the health effects can be quite immediate including uh, strokes which are the most likely outcome of exposure to high levels of air pollution, heart attacks, and a wide range of other things. Uh, again, this is just an example of what I'd like to think of as willful ignorance and uh, the fact that you know, some governments and some individuals prefer just to wait and see. You know, we did the same thing for smoking with tobacco for 50 years plus, and we knew really clearly back then that this was a bad thing to do, yet you know, doctors would encourage it or they would be smoking and not discourage their patients. There'd be advertising everywhere, and uh, you know, it just never really got addressed. Is it just wildfire smoke? Uh, is it, you know, I, I note that uh, every so often in the wintertime especially, uh, you'll see pockets of, of the interior put under air quality alerts uh, due to everyone firing up their, their wood stove or, you know, throwing logs in the fireplace and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, the, the chemical composition of, of wood smoke is the same pretty much if it's uh, from wildfire or if it's from a bonfire or from um, a wood fire in your house. You know, and a lot of people just assume that this is natural and it's something that we've done for a long time and, you know, we'll sit around the bonfire in the summertime with our kids. But really, uh, the smoke levels that you can get in those kinds of exposures and in a wildfire are the equivalent of smoking a couple of packs of cigarettes a day. So it is uh, quite a horrendous risk that we shouldn't be taking if we can help it. Uh, the BC Lung Association, I believe, was involved in, in, the, uh, in the conference down the Lower Mainland. Uh, what's their role in all this? Well, the BC Lung Association, uh, as, as you would expect, is the preeminent um, nonprofit charity in the, in the province trying to encourage people to improve their lung health. Unfortunately, you know, it's only been in the last year or less 
that they've actually started to focus on wood smoke. And they're in a little bit of a conflict of interest, in my opinion. The BC Lung Association is the organization that's in charge of administering the wood stove exchange program on behalf of the province. And they actually make money from this. They make about $10,000 a year on average for administering that program. So it's kind of like a lung association encouraging people to smoke light cigarettes and then making it possible for them to do so. I have um, a lot of concerns about what they're doing. I've raised it with them, um, but they still are you know, on that track. But some will say, listen, the Wood Stove Exchange Program, not a bad program. You know, uh, yes, it is burning wood and emitting smoke, but uh, it's doing so in some cases pretty efficiently as far as house heating and all that kind of jazz. Unfortunately, the, um, the EPA certified wood stoves, the, the newer, more modern wood stoves, we like to think of them, are no, they're not really that much cleaner than the ones they replace. And we found that in communities that have switched over to wood stoves that are of this nature, that people burn more and the pollution actually goes up. So by having an organization like BC Lung support and administer a program like this, it gives the impression that this is safe and desirable and that it's a better alternative, but it truly isn't. Hmm. Okay, last question to you, uh, Dr. Mehta, as, as far as this uh, sort of new awareness or new understanding of, of wildfire smoke and, and, uh, and other concerns with air quality. I mean, ultimately, what's the next step here? What do we do to address this particular issue? Well, there's lots of different things. Uh, one thing that I'm working on with a team at uh, UBCO in, in Kelowna and UNBC in Prince George is a proposal that we've just submitted to uh, a grant competition for an early forest fire detection system, a wildfire detection system, which would be ideally located at an interface fire location near a high-risk population. And the goal here is to actually create uh, a much earlier alert so that communities can not only be proactive about managing the fire risks, but also to uh, develop more proactive approaches for risk communication when the smoke starts to come their way. Concerning, I would bet, yeah? It is, yeah. It's. I think this... Uh, this summer, unfortunately, we probably you know will have a, a worse forest fire season than we've seen in the past two years. We've moved into an extremely strong El Nino oscillation with a, a very dry, hot uh, spring and summer on the way. And uh, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I think this is what we're, we're in for. Dr. Meadow, pleasure. Thanks for taking some time to talk about this important issue. Thank you very much, Shane. That was Dr. Michael Meadow with Thompson Rivers University talking wildfire smoke and health concerns. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk to Camelot South MLA, Todd Stone, as he's put pen to paper in the aftermath of the scrapping of the downtown BCLC headquarters project. That coming next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. As you can remember, uh, the province scrapping that decision to do a full replacement on the downtown Kamloops BCLC headquarters, even though that project was fairly well down the road. Uh, that didn't sit well with the Kamloops MLAs, Todd Stone and Peter Millibar. Well, it's been a few weeks now, and they've uh, had some time to think about it, and uh, they've decided to uh, take a little bit of action, uh, putting pen to paper, as it were. Uh, welcoming on the phone lines this morning, the MLA for Kamloops South, Todd Stone. On the BCLC thing, uh, you and Peter have put pen to paper, uh, firing a letter off to the Attorney General David Eby, who's responsible for BCLC uh, and the aborted headquarters project in downtown Kamloops. So uh, what, in essence, have you requested from Mr. Eby? Well, uh, after uh, uh, letting the, uh, the decision to uh, kill the project committed to this uh, uh, city, uh, after letting that sink in for a few days, uh, Peter and I decided to, uh, to fire off a letter to David Eby uh, requesting 
an official tour be provided uh, for both Peter and me of the uh, BCLC uh, head office here in Kamloops, as well as the uh, BCLC office on Virtual Way in Vancouver. Uh, you know, we, we, since the decision was made, we've, 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 we've continued to hear from a number of BCLC employees who are, are uh, quite frustrated. They're not buying uh, what the NDP are selling on this. Uh, and uh, Peter and I, as the elected representatives of Camels uh, and area, uh, we want to see the office space in the two respective cities with our own eyes and, and make sure that we, uh, we best understand the nature of, uh, of, of the current operations uh, at BCLC as well as the future plans. Okay, so uh, response back from Mr. Eby yet or no? Uh, no response yet. Uh, it would, it'll take, I'm sure, a, a couple more days. Uh, but uh, certainly, uh, we're, we're hopeful that uh, he will uh, facilitate this request uh, quickly. Uh, I do recall uh, that, uh, as an opposition uh, critic, uh, he was provided uh, uh, several meetings with BCLC staff, uh, and uh, and I believe that included a tour of the Camels uh, facility. Uh, again, that was when he was in opposition, and it's a very standard uh, request that uh, MLAs make, uh, to, uh, regardless of what party they, they, uh, they are affiliated with, to uh, tour provincial assets. And, uh, it, you know, it's important, the piece of this whole discussion, when there was 250 net new jobs planned uh, over a 10-year period uh, for the Camels office, uh, and that uh, was predicated on a new building being built, which has been cancelled by the NDP. Uh, when we hear suggestions from, uh, from, from David Eby and others that uh, perhaps a solution, uh, an alternative solution to this, to this challenge is to just tuck uh, a few people away in, in vacant office space in the downtown corridor. I mean, that's just uh, nonsense. And certainly not uh, music to the ears of people who uh, are crammed into the existing building here in Kamloops. So well, Peter and I just want to uh, want to get in and uh, and have a look uh, with our own eyes again as uh, the duly elected representatives of uh, of, of the riding uh, or the city most most impacted by this decision and uh, uh, make sure that we we truly understand uh, what the the nature of their operations uh, looks like. As far as uh, touring the the BCLC headquarters here in Kamloops, uh, I can see what's going on there. Uh, the one down in Vancouver, Todd, is that to more or less just with your own eyes check for, for how the staffing situation is and get a sense of what's going on there? Because I know the fear is leakage from here to there. Well, it's part of the, part of the challenge at the moment is that there have been conflicting statements made by uh, David Eby and uh, and others uh, on this file. Uh, we have heard uh, from uh, on, on some occasions from David Eby that uh, the uh, the uh, virtual way office in Vancouver uh, that BCLC has, uh, which is a, a relatively new building, uh, that that building is uh, is full. Uh, he has uh, very recently uh, stated, uh, I believe, even even on your show, that uh, that that building is full, and uh, and that's part of the reason why uh, they will continue to look to hire people in in the Camloops office. Uh, we have uh, heard, however, from a, a number of uh, folks who are pretty close to this file uh, who have said to us, uh, that's not true. Uh, there is uh, lots of empty space in the building in Vancouver. Uh, so again, uh, you know, we, we have had to fight this battle over three three decades or so, uh, where there is, has at times been a, a, an impulse to, uh, through a, a almost drip by drip, to, to move uh, staff out of Kamloops and, and into Vancouver, um, most often through attrition. A uh, position comes up in Kamloops and it gets filled um, uh, in Vancouver. Uh, forget about adding 250 net new jobs, uh, which was the original plan uh, over the next 10 years in Kamloops. So 
uh, again, uh, we just think uh, uh, it, the, the responsible thing to do here as the elected representatives for, for Kamloops uh, is, to, is to see that office space and understand uh, what, uh, what, what uh, is in that space in, in, the, in, in, in the Vancouver office uh, and, and contrast that with uh, what the office space situation is in, in Kamloops so that uh, we're all uh, you know, singing off the same hymn sheet here uh, moving forward. Uh, just out of curiosity and sort of related to this issue, I know uh, Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian said he has some assurances from uh, Mr. Lightbody and Mr. Eby that uh, if they do outgrow the BCLC headquarters, and it sounds like they already have, that if they're going to seek new space, it would be to use empty office space in the downtown core of Kamloops. Uh, your take, is that, uh, is that a reasonable idea or should we still go on with that old uh, new headquarters idea? Well, again, the, the new headquarters idea uh, was well developed. Uh, it had gone to uh, it was well well into a tendering process. A, a proponent had been selected. Uh, uh, the uh, the actual construction of that building was going to be uh, done, uh, and, and the costs borne by the private sector, uh, thus minimizing the impact on the taxpayer uh, dramatically. Uh, so, you know, it was a red herring uh, when we heard uh, BCLC and, and David Eby uh, talking about. Uh, how uh, this was a fiscally responsible decision that they had to make uh, with, with uh, cost escalation being uh, uh, largely associated with the parquet there, uh, largely being the issue. Uh, that, that is complete nonsense. Uh, again, this building was going to be uh, built and uh, 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 managed by the private sector and, and leased, likely leased back to, uh, to BCLC, so the cost to the taxpayer would have been minimal. Uh, in terms of that upfront capital cost, uh, but uh, you know, any, any suggestion of taking uh, taking uh, uh, components of BCLC's operations here in Camelot and uh, tucking people away in groups of five or ten or fifteen in in, in multiple uh, locations on, on different floors of different buildings across uh, downtown Camelot is, is frankly ridiculous. Uh, uh, what uh, what the corporation needs, what it was prom- what the people of Camelot were promised. Uh, was uh, a, a, a new headquarters that again would would reaffirm the government's commitment to the headquarters being here in Kamloops long term, and that would uh, would facilitate uh, the growth uh, of employment here in Kamloops by another by up, upwards of 250 positions over the next 10 years. So that's all now jeopardized uh, with this NDP decision. Um, while I got you on the phone, uh, Mr. Farnworth has uh, decreed there's going to be some changes to the ledge to, uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Craig James uh, Gary Lenz fiasco, uh, including opening up to FOI, protecting whistleblowers, and doing an independent audit of some uh, staffing appointments. Uh, pass the muster in your eyes or no? Uh, very certain that we will support any and all measures uh, that are focused on uh, uh, providing a, a greater uh, transparency and accountability in the legislature. Uh, very proud of the 20-point uh, ethics plan, which uh, our leader, uh, Andrew Wilkinson, put out uh, a number of days ago, uh, which, uh, again, is, is focused on ensuring that every single taxpayer's dollar that is spent uh, in that building uh, to, uh, to, to, to run it and, and manage it uh, uh, is uh, is spent wisely and and uh, with the utmost respect. Uh, so uh, certainly uh, the, the the whistleblower piece, uh, uh, FOI, and so forth. Uh, you know all of this uh, should should apply to the legislature, and and I certainly would uh, support that. I think in terms of receipts for the the, the major officers uh, in the legislature, uh, you know I would go uh, suggest one step uh, further uh, should be considered, and that's just put everything on, you know, make everything available publicly so that the public doesn't even have to FOI uh, any of that information. It, it, it should be just made public uh, uh, so that the public can uh, 
can, uh, anyone who's interested can go and take a look at um, at, at who's spending what. Uh, we we do that with uh, uh, with MLA expenses. Um, we we did uh, began to do that a number of years ago. I was a strong supporter of that. Uh, to, as far as I know, there haven't been any uh, any controversies, uh, um, uh, you know, resulting from that. Why? Because it's uh, it's all out there in the public eye uh, for the public to uh, to digest as they see fit. Todd, thanks uh, for taking a bit of time this morning to chat with us. That was the MLA for Kamloops South, Todd Stone, talking about his concerns on the BCLC headquarters front. We'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we're going to talk about rail safety in light of that tragedy that unfolded uh, near Field earlier this week. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. A rail tragedy unfolded near Field earlier this week, ultimately claiming the lives of three Canadian Pacific Rail crew members as a train plummeted off a trestle into the river down below. Uh, so we're going to talk about rail safety and the impacts of that particular tragedy in the rail community. Pleasure to be joined on the phone by the Director of Public Affairs for Teamsters Canada, Christopher Monet. Christopher, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Uh, how you doing? Uh, not bad. Still recovering from that uh, derailment on uh, Monday. A, a lot of our members are still uh, in mourning and shocked and saddened by what happened uh, as uh, investigators are still trying to piece together the exact details and circumstances yeah. surrounding all of this. What's, I mean, you know better than I because you work in the industry, but what's, what's been the impact in, in the rail industry from your perception? Well, the impact, at least on our members, the people operating the trains, uh, has uh, been huge. Um, you know, this is a situation where a train parked on an incline uh, and uh, with the emergency brakes engaged, suddenly these brakes fail. And um, that uh, that's not something that any uh, train operator should expect or accept, uh, you know, happening normally. And... Uh, as we know, it's a new tr- a new train crew that had just boarded the train uh, when the brake system failed. Uh, the emergency brakes failed. The train started moving on its own. All three crew members. Um, the train reached speeds well in excess of the maximums for the track, uh, given the tight curves and the mountain grade, and and, and the train derailed. And uh, um, railroaders across the country are are, are sharing details of this accident and. Uh, uh, were in shock and 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 odd how this could have possibly happened. Um, in the industry itself, I mean, obviously the Transportation Safety Board is is in the middle of doing an investigation. Transport Canada, I assume, a fairly uh, number of other agencies may be involved as well. But um, in light of this uh, horrific news, is there been sort of a, a concern, a rethink, a reexamination of of, uh, of you know similar locomotives that are out there to kind of get an understanding of what may have happened, in, and so it doesn't happen anywhere else, or whether it's unique to this, or whether there needs to be some kind of a recall. Or, or things like that. Are we are we taking a second look at these types of locomotives or no? It's not just these types of locomotives. It's the entire industry and it's the entire state of rail safety in Canada. Uh, the, the, the problem is, and what we need to remember here, it's not just uh, one fatal incident here. We're at eight dead railroaders in a little over a year in Canada, to be exact, eight uh, workplace fatalities and six separate incidents since November 2017. 
And um, our union is uh, trying to raise some alarm about that because it's not something uh, that should be expected or accepted. And we're hoping that the government is going to look at this and the industry is going to look at this and realize that something's going terribly wrong right now and that uh, change is needed. Is that a, is that a high? I mean, I'm assuming it's a high annual number, but I mean, uh, the sort of number of deaths annually, uh, what do you guys generally look at in, in that industry? One, in our opinion, is high. A single death is high, but this, but eight, is uh, is 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 completely unacceptable for us, and um, and it's something that uh, that uh, you know the government really needs to start looking at seriously. Are, I mean, we obviously are aware of the, th- the three deaths associated with uh, the horrific incident near Field. Um, what uh, what sort of, sort of circumstances were involved in, in the other five cases? Well, right now it's hard to draw any commonalities between these incidents. They happen both uh, at night and during the day in urban centers and in rural areas. Uh, in one case, the derailment on the Hudson Bay Railway involved um, the tracks being flooded. And um, when the train derailed, uh, the derailment was actually only uncovered by accident uh, two hours later when a helicopter was flying overhead. And uh, both our members uh, who were operating that train had initially survived that derailment. Um, but uh, because for reasons we don't, still don't quite understand, paramedics were not allowed to attend uh, to um, uh, a scene. And uh, our member, one of our members ended up bleeding to death over nine hours. Uh, we've, in that specific situation, in that specific incident, we've called for a coroner's inquest, and uh, we're still waiting to hear progress on, uh, uh, on the investigation into that. But it's a it's it's just one example, one shocking example, of, uh, of uh, the state of rail safety in this country. When one of our members needs help, when help is available, but paramedics can't attend to the scene, uh, and then the person ends up dying from completely avoidable in, from completely survivable industries, it's something that adds to um, I would say the the shock and the anger that we're starting to see uh, in our membership. So, uh, you know, in the case of the field incident, it looks, I mean, again, the investigation's underway with no final results, but it sounds really like a major mechanical failure. And the incident you just described, uh, something else entirely, it seems like there's some serious failings as far as protocols. Um, and that, I mean, that incident shouldn't happen. We have paramedics in this country to, to deal with situations like that. Uh, how, do we, how do we improve rail safety, both on a mechanical level and on a sort of a rules and regulations level? level? Well, look, on an overall level, because as I said, like, it's hard to find commonalities between all of these uh, fatal accidents, but on an overall level, a good first place to start would be to uh, end the self-regulation of uh, the industry, because right now it's the rail companies who are writing the rules in the rail industry, including the rail safety rules, and it's led to absurd and obviously unsafe situations, uh, like, for example, having people operate trains after they've been awake for 18, 19, sometimes 20 hours. Now, I don't want to say fatigue uh, was uh, a factor in uh, any of the derailments uh, we've just discussed, either this recent one or the one in uh, in Manitoba. But it, it has been an overall major safety issue in the rail industry for decades. It's been at the center of most labor disputes in this industry. Uh, and it's probably a problem that would have been fixed by now if companies uh, were not the ones literally writing the rules 
we need um, independent experts writing the rules and writing them in consultation with all stakeholders, <clears throat> excuse me, not just the companies, uh, whether it's for fatigue or uh, mechanical issues or, or, or brake specifications on mounted inclines. Uh, we need to stop uh, looking at just the companies when it comes uh, to regulations uh, in the rail industry. What would, uh, any idea who those independent agencies would be that, that, that you would entrust to kind of step in and do that work? Or? Well, ideally, Transport Canada would need to uh, staff up and uh, have uh, experts writing these rules and uh, have processes and procedures set out to allow all the stakeholders. That includes the unions, by the way, but also municipalities when it comes to uh, rail crossings and, 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 and other groups across, across the country, not just the companies, but give them a, 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 a sincere voice at the table when it comes to drafting these rules. Is part of the problem, I mean, Canada is so reliant on, on, on rail uh, commerce, you know, it, in a very real way, uh, binds our country together. Um, you know, you got to get grain to port, you got to get this to port, you got to get this back and forth. Uh, rail traffic moves constantly. Is, it, is part of the problem the stress on the system that you can't just, you know, stop and say, okay, we need to reassess, we need to make improvements, let's take a day off, let's figure this out, that kind of thing, because the pressure's there to go, 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 go. Yeah, the pressure is there to go, 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 go. We, the rail industry is a 24-7 industry. We can have, uh, you know, railroaders, unless they uh, book off rest in certain situations, it's not always possible. Uh, but railroaders are essentially on call 24-7, and they can get a call at pretty much any time of the day and uh, be asked to uh, report to a train station and uh, operate a train, drive it uh, from point A to point B. It's a it's a tough industry. It's uh, it's it's and it's tough on workers. And uh, we think that um, you know if operational efficiency was not the only thing being looked at when we were drafting uh, rules and we when when we're looking at the overall framework of regulatory framework of the industry, we probably would not have gotten to a point where uh, we have a rail industry that's um, that's so on workers and that's uh, and that's literally a twenty four seven environment. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, last question uh, to you, uh, Christopher. I mean, uh, in light of all the stuff that's going on out there, and, and you've highlighted a fairly serious safety concern, um, in the aftermath of what we've seen in field, uh, what what should we do to address the overall safety issue? What's the next step here? Well, the next step um, is, well, first we need to wait until uh, we get the results of, of the TSB investigation so we know exactly what we're talking about and so we know exactly what took place. Uh, we need to wait until we have uh, the results of investigations from uh, from all these other uh, previous fatal incidents. Uh, un unfortunately, even the one from November 2017 is still under investigation. It's starting to take a bit of time. Uh, but moving forward, one thing we just the government really starts needs to start doing is is uh, reaching out to people besides the companies when it comes to drafting the rules. Uh, the, the federal government, for uh, for example, has already ordered the rail companies to um, rewrite the rules on fatigue, for example. Uh, and we're waiting to see uh, what comes out of that, if anything comes out of that, and uh, and something we're monitoring very closely. But 
obviously it, it, it shouldn't be the real companies writing the rules in the first place and that's something that that should have changed uh, ages ago Christopher thanks uh, for taking some time and and our condolences to everybody uh, you know with you guys and in the industry over over uh, you know the eight overall deaths and, and of course the the three most recent tragic deaths near field uh, so I'm sure it's a tough go for all you guys uh, but thanks for taking some time out and, and shedding a little bit of light on it it's been tough. Thank you so much. That was Director of Public Affairs with Teamsters Canada, Christopher Monet, talking about rail safety in light of that terrible tragedy in your field claiming the lives of three rail workers. A quick break on the Woodford Show. We'll talk about renewal with the B.C. Liberal Party next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. We're trying to get a hold of uh, Mike Bernier to talk about BC Liberal Party renewal. Uh, while we work the phones to try and get Mr. Bernier on the phone, I'm joined in the studio by NL Newsday host Brettman here to, uh, as we call in the profession, dance. <laughs> Let's, let's dance, Shane. <laughs> How you doing? Oh, I'm doing not too bad. Yeah, okay. I was just uh, reading through. I don't know if you've seen it uh, seen it yet, but uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's office. Uh, oh, hell of a story this morning out of the Globe and Mail. Yeah, yeah Globe and Mail. Basically, um, I mean, it sounds like it would be probably pretty easy to figure out where this story uh, came from. Jody Wilson-Raybould recently... Um, demoted in the cabinet shuffle and uh, then all of a sudden this uh, story appears where Jody Wilson-Raybould is the hero of the day uh, because she allegedly stood up to attempts by uh, the Prime Minister's staff to make sure that SNC-Lavalin was effectively, I don't want to say let off the hook, but they would come to some kind of a yeah. an agreement for in their uh, corruption case. Yeah, and uh, by the way, the Prime Minister has denied all of this, adding more intrigue to the fire. But anyway, sure. uh, hey, listen, uh, thank Thanks for helping me out for a few minutes there. Uh, we've got, uh, we've got uh, Peace River South MLA Mike Bernier on the phone now. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning. My apologies. Minus 30 and my phone phone was frozen. <laughs> was it literally frozen? Yeah. It's, uh, what's what happens when you leave your truck uh, not running and your uh, cell phone in the truck overnight. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, it's good to have you on the phone, Mike. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. It's been a little bit. Um, just I wanted to get you on because I know you always provide interesting uh, viewpoints, but I'm curious what you think. Uh, your party is, is launching a refresh, a renewal. Uh, you're looking for uh, young, exciting candidates. I assume you want some kind of um, equal equivalency among gender or ethnicity, that kind of thing. Uh, first and foremost, uh, your your thought on that is, is, is it overdue? Does the party need to go down this road in your mind? Well, I think all parties should be looking at uh, making sure they have that diversity in our party specifically. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson, uh, when he became the leader, that's one of the things that we acknowledged was, uh, you know, we needed to do a better job as a party, and so it's great to see uh, the leadership he's showing and making sure we're doing that because when you look at uh, the last election, for instance, you know, there were a lot of people that maybe left our party or didn't vote for us uh, thought maybe we weren't resonating anymore, and so obviously as a party we need to do a better job to get out to a, a more a bigger variety, I guess, of the public. Yeah. What's your opinion, Mike, as far as, I mean, you've got a number of sitting MLAs. Um, do you open up every riding in the nomination process? Should it be just for uh, ridings where you're seeking, uh, where there's an NDP MLA or a Green Party MLA and you're seeking a candidate in those regions, or should it be a free-for-all? 
Well, you know, every election, we look at every single riding, and we make sure that uh, whether you're a sitting MLA or not, that, you know, you're still the best candidate for that riding. So even for myself, uh, even though I was a sitting MLA last election, uh, they opened it up in my riding to see if there was anybody else that wanted to uh, take on the role and seeing if anybody else wanted to run against me for the B.C. Liberals. Uh, no one did, but the, uh, the option is always there. Our party's always allowed that. The NDP, of course, get a lot of credit for being a little bit ahead of the curve on this, but uh, even they went through some controversy with the rules there. For instance, if there's a male MLA, then there's got to be a female uh, candidate next time around, that kind of thing. Uh, and they took some criticism for the way they went about it. I mean, the end result, you could say that, uh, that maybe it was worth it or maybe not, but uh, how do you go about this, you know, in, in achieving that diversity, but also making sure the best person for the job gets in there? Yeah, and that's, you know, obviously always a challenge. I don't think uh, the way the NDP does that is fair to every riding, because at the end of the day, it should be under a democratic system. The choice of the people in the riding, if they want someone young, somebody older, someone with experience, someone new, you know, all those options should be on the table and not dictated by the party. I've always been a firm believer that the party should allow the ridings and the citizens to, to decide who their candidates are. Is this in way, in some way an acknowledgement, Mike, that, that the Liberals have, have let the old guard kind of stand for too long, or, or do you see it that way? Uh, I, personally, I don't see it that way. I look at uh, some of our uh, long-term MLAs, and of course, some of them get criticism uh, for being there a long time. But I would argue, you know, I look at someone like Shirley Bond. She's probably one of the hardest-working MLAs we have, and the citizens in her riding continue to elect her because of that so whether she's been there one term or five terms like she's been uh the electorate still choose her because of the great job she does so i don't think at this point we've never looked at term limits uh to to kind of get away from that because sometimes that experience is important and if they're still working hard and the voters want them uh, i think the voters should choose would this be something the party would have gone down the road anyway as far as kind of pushing the pedal uh, on this, or was it, uh, was it in light of what happened in Nanaimo, you had a really great candidate there, someone that everyone was pretty excited about, and then it didn't, the end result wasn't what you wanted, obviously, but did that trigger sort of a faster movement on this or no? Well, this, this discussion's been going on since the last uh, election and the results that happened there that we need to figure out how to have that broader appeal. You look at the leadership race and how it resonated and some of the different candidates uh, to a broader audience, if you want to call it audience, uh, electorate. And so, obviously, when you look at the results in Nanaimo, I think we did a great job uh, being a... Uh, basically, everybody had written us off that we wouldn't win anyway. And we had, under Tony, an amazing candidate. But it also did spark the fact that, yeah, we need to do what we were talking about and get out and diversify our party and make sure we resonate better. I'm curious, too, because, I mean, to diversify is one thing, but there's going to be an immediate um, impact uh, if and when you do uh, with, a, with a party that takes in new younger voices, new ethnic voices, uh, you know, lesbian, gay, transgender voices, whatever, whatever the case may be. With those new voices, with that fresh blood, it's going to come new ideas, a changing outlook, a new vision, uh, new things the party's going to have to consider. The party as a whole will change a little bit because of that. I totally agree, and that's uh, that's not a bad thing at all. I think parties should always be evolving. Uh, if they become stagnant, then you start losing um, losing touch with the people who elected you, or even the people who maybe um, 
just get, don't get out and vote because of uh, the feelings that they don't feel the parties resonate. So I think anytime you have turnover in every election, there's more people, new people who bring different ideas. And that's a good thing because, again, if, if we always stay the same, then, uh, then we're in the wrong, uh, in the wrong line of uh, what we're trying to do to help people. Because people change, ideas change, visions need to change with it. Uh, last question, uh, Mike. Uh, obviously, you're doing this to prepare the party for an election. Uh, what kind of urgency is there uh, within the party to get candidates in place uh, to address the diversity issue? Uh, because the big question mark is when there might be a provincial election. Um, 2021 is the next one scheduled. Uh, this government formation is interesting enough that we don't quite know if we're going to make it there or not. Uh, is there a sense within the party we need to do this faster, uh, sooner or no? Election could happen at any time. I mean, when you look at what's happening right now for the for you and the media and all others, the stories seem to just be writing themselves. <laughs> you don't have to look too hard for uh, what's happening in the legislature or around the province. Uh, and when you look at the instability right now between the Greens and the NDP, of course, they try to put on the big smiley face to say everything's fine. But in Victoria, we see the tension. We see the stress uh, that's happening and the pressure that the Greens are under to try to identify themselves as well because they've become known as just an appendage of the the NDP. Because of that, yeah, I don't know when an election could be, uh, but we have to be ready just in case. Mike, always a pleasure chatting. Thanks so much for taking some time and for unfreezing your phone. Yeah, my apologies for being a bit late. <laughs> it's all good, my friend. Uh, that's uh, that's Peace River South MLA, Mike Bernier, also former education minister of the previous uh, previous PC Liberal government. Uh, and that's it for today's Woodford Show. My thanks to Brett Manier for helping me kill a little bit of time there. And to my guest today, we'll see you here on Radio NL again tomorrow. But the name of the show changes. Inside Politics, coming your way Friday. Where the interior stays connected. This is CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. Radio NL, 610 AM. Local News Now.